0: Thank you for joining The Ones Changing the World, which is India's first future tech Meets Sustainability podcast. And today, I'm delighted and honored to have with me Jennifer Schwarz, who's a theoretical physicist at the Syracuse University Department of Physics in the Bio-Inspiring Institute. And she also leads the J.M. Schwarz theory group. So, Jennifer, really appreciate you taking time and uh, being on the podcast. Why don't we start with a small brief introduction?
1: Um, Yeah. So as you just noted, I am a theoretical physicist. Um, My training actually is more in a phase transition of what uh, we like to call now dead matter. So matter that is not living in granular systems, how things go from how particles go from jammed or stuck to unjammed or flowing. Um, So that's where I began um, my training. And and since then, I've become more and more interested in uh, biological systems and how uh, they work um, at multiple scales. And so I've been uh, modeling uh, cell nuclei, um, and there's very interesting dynamics of chromatin, in cell nuclei, uh, there's something called correlated chromatin motion, which was observed maybe about 10 years ago. Um, and so building minimal models for how correlated chromatin motion ob- is emerges. So, and other scales I've been working on cell motility, um, how cells move through microchannels, um, uh, and also at the tissue scale, um, which now then brings us to uh, brain organoids thinking of uh, tissues or organoids from a theoretical physicist perspective as a cellular collective. So a collection of cells, a clump of cells um, that grows and um, becomes, if you will, a particular type of organoid or organ, but really organoid, depending on the type of treatment uh, one uh, gives it. So you spoke about dead matter. Can you explain the
0: the difference between Non-living matter and living matter.
1: So, you know, we have a, a coffee cup here, we have our computers, all solid state. These are our um, systems, if you will, that do not have properties of life in the sense that we would call them Um, you know, they necessarily can't learn, though here's where we start to talk about AI and sort of the boundaries between what is life, what is living matter versus dead matter. So one would say, you know, a granular system, um, that's a system of particles that interact, they have some interactions, um, and then they can, the the system can be deformed based on boundary conditions. um, But there's no uh, sense of um, a learning capability. There might be actually some memory capability, um, but there's no sense of learning. There's no sense of sort of coming up with uh, solutions, uh, creating solutions to problems um, that maybe hadn't existed before. So if we were to define life, you know, what is life? One could say um, that it's it's a, a, a system, if you will, that with learning and that can learn and and and, and a, um, approach problems with some sort of creative new solution. Um, of course, people always talk about when they talk about life. We we need water. We need this. We need that. We certainly you know need all of those things. We need fuel uh, for say our body. Um, but then the question is, um, cars also need. Fuel. so would you consider a car to be living and i guess i would say you know at this point no i would not consider a car to be living but of course as we start to approach the boundary between machine so maybe we could call dead matter a machine and um, living matter a biological type construct once we start to build either biocomputers via brain organoids um, as is happening as we speak um, or we also go from the other side and have machines that can learn. We start to blur the boundary between sort of um, dead and living matter um, because sort of maybe each have sort of elements of the other.
0: Right. Yeah. I I think we we kind of already blurring the lines.
1: Matter. I mean, makes
0: everything. You know, it creates the stars, sun, moon, sand, us, and, and everything. We we are matter
1: too. I mean, we are yeah, dead exactly. matter in some extent. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Exactly. So so, but then I, I mean is that ingredient what is, what is a bunch of matters that comes together compositionally to create organic life
1: okay so that's a great question i've been thinking about it too as the lines become more blurred in the sense of what is the boundary between you know dead and living matter and maybe in principle the, the boundary isn't a hard boundary um in the sense that certainly for biological systems there is i mean there also isn't dead matter too but a a multi-scale, a hierarchy of scale. Certainly with dead matter, we start with, well, we could even go, not even start with atoms, we could start with sort of even smaller scale, but we could start with atoms. So we have our coffee cup, we have our tables, we have our granular material. Um, we have particles, if you will, at the smaller scale, which then interact. Um, at that small scale. And then when we think of a collection of them, um, the emergent properties occur um, in the sense of being sort of jammed or unjammed or, or other properties. Um, in the living system, however, um, there is an active feedback, I think, between um, sort of the different scales and how, let's say, in terms of biology. So now we get to biology and we say um, biologists can mutate genes they can mutate a gene in even an organoid, um, in a brain organoid, for example. And then one can ask, based on that mutation at that nanometer scale, what hap- What differences, or maybe not so many differences, but what differences can potentially emerge at the centimeter scale? Differences in structure, uh, maybe differences in function, um, you know, given certainly genetic mutations um, in, in brain development, um, we have lissencephaly, um, where which is the development of a smooth brain. Our brains have folds, um, but with a genetic mutation, um, one can have a, a brain that is not as functional, but also does not have as many folds. So, from the biology perspective, we change something at the small scale, and we um, have some perhaps some outcome um, that affects some outcome at the bigger scale. Now. There is feedback also, again, the dead matter in the sense that we could tune interactions at the small scale and maybe have something that, a system that maybe wouldn't jam or act a little differently. But the thing is, is living systems in principle can adapt. And that's where the creativity and one adaptation, adaption however we wanna call it, uh, comes into play. Um, Of course, one could say, ah, but, you know, Jen, I'm going to build a dead system that can adapt, too. Um, And so, you know, maybe, you know, that's where, again, the lines become blurred. And so certainly um, in in the biological system with this interplay of scales and how the different scales interact, Certainly that interaction and the feedback between the different scales is is much more complex in a biological system. And it's one that we don't understand yet um, fully, hardly at all. Um, Whereas in the dead matter, we can sort of understand, we we change interaction strengths and whatnot between atoms or between this, we can sort of then make predictions as to what happens um, um, at the larger scales. And so I would say um, there's active sort of feedback between the different scales in a living system. In a dead system, you change something small scale and you you sort of know the consequences because there's not necessarily complex feedback and active feedback and adaption and whatnot. So I would say sort of the living systems in terms of adaptability and and feedback at, 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 at actually all scales really kind of gives gives rise to an organism, if you will, that's much more intricate and complex than uh, something in, in as, wow. as dead matter.
0: So Jennifer, you have been working on brain organoids. Would, would, would you mind kind of explaining first what are brain organoids and how is it
1: helpful? Yeah, so um, brain organoids, um, one can start out with um, some uh, pluripotent stem cells. These stem cells are... Sort of not programmed yet, if you will, to become, well, they will be, uh, they're not yet, if you will, a a brain cell or a neuron or a, a kidney cell or a heart cell. So as they grow, these clump of cells in a petri dish, um, they're given growth factors, they may be put into a spinning bioreactor, um, they maybe um, have some gel around them, so certain conditions upon which then they uh, become, if you will, a larger clump of cells with more cells, say, of order, you know, 100,000 cells, depending on, you know, how long you wait for them to grow, there's certainly limitations on their sizes, um, given that cells in the core need nutrients to survive. And as the brain organoid becomes bigger, it becomes harder to deliver um, nutrients to the cells at the core. Um, And as that clump of cells um, divides, it can take on properties, aspects of, say, for the brain organoid, our brain, um, aspects such as neuronal diversity, Um, where you can have a whole sort of diverse array of different types of neurons. Um, You can also see layering as we have a a six-fold layering of the cerebral cortex. You can also, if you grow these brain organoids, so this is work done in the lab of Orly Reiner, if you grow uh, brain organoids under confinement, so they're grown in sort of a quasi-2D environment, um, you can have these or these organoids actually develop Uh, some indications of folds, fold-like structures, just like we have folds in our own brain. Um, But this is under sort of a certain set of conditions. So there are some structural similarities, and then you also come to functional similarities in the sense of as these brain organoids become older in the order of sort of months old, um, actually these neurons that emerge um, can actually fire uh, electrical signals. And so then, there, once you start having a, a working neuronal network in a brain organoid, of course, then that begs the question of, oh, let's build, you know, brain organoid uh, computers.
0: Wow, how cool and fascinating is this? That you take a cell, you put it in a PT dish. I mean, create a pluripotent stem cell uh, and then put it in a PT dish and, you know, give it, you know, the um, things to kind of uh, Help metro in, in, <laughs> right. and, open. and eventually it becomes the, these clumps tiny clumps of brain organoids which resembles the patient's own brain and and you you, you can do like anything you could you take the cell and you can create a kidney you could create a different organoid also besides besides, so, so how, how fascinating is that uh, could could you elaborate a little bit more on this you know, when when you create this brain organoid and you're saying that uh, structurally what, as well as functionally it, it can uh, resemble the, the patients uh, the brains and how you know whatever it's doing you know the, the neuronal fires what like in, if it's doing that how how much can we learn from of, of the patient and if we have I mean, kind of. This, if you're modeling this, is a model of uh, the patient's uh, inner brain. What can we learn from it, and what are the ways that we can, you know, create applications which could, you know, uh, you know, help uh, in in the healthcare space?
1: Um, so certainly, yes. The, the 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 precision medicine is 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 almost you know is is here. Um, so indeed, one can take a patient's blood. Create the uh, pluripotent stem cells and then, um, and then grow, if you will, a brain organoid, say if the if the patient has glio, a glioblastoma. And then one can ask, okay, now given this um, brain organoid or this brain tissue, if you will, it's in the petri dish, presumably one can test out different treatments um, to see whether or not um, at least this particular um, tissue in the, in the petri dish will be responsive or not. Um, to particular types of treatments. So one can have tailor, you know, sort of individualized treatments, um, depending on, on, on what happens in these experiments. Now, there is an issue, though, of course, with glioblastoma, depending on the progression of the disease, it's on a very fast timescale, maybe on the order of months. And at least as of now, there are issues with timescales in terms of growing brain organoids from a patient's stem cells in the sense of maybe it's sort of a year, more like a year long time scale. And so these things take time. Of course, um, you know, that time scale will probably shrink as as, as technology improves. Um, but here is where I would like to step in in the sense of as a theoretical physicist, I build and computational physicist, I build um, uh, computational models. And so here is where, you know, maybe, you know, if I sort of know enough about um, the patient, or maybe they sort of are able to, um, if you will get some, some pluripotent stem cells, then maybe I can as a simulator, you know, make predictions ultimately about, um, so simulate the growth of the brain organoid based on a person's, um, if you will, chromatin organization and whatnot. Um, and, then simulate in the computer on a much shorter time scale, um, and try to make predictions about uh, potential treatments. Now that's it's still a little uh, far away in terms of uh, simulating in the computer the brain, the growth of the brain, organoids and the structure and the function. Um, but that's what I'm 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 working towards uh, myself and and other uh, collaborators. And another thing would be to help understand what are the emergent properties of learning, and to do this through you know, looking at uh, the emergence of a neural network, a neuronal network in a brain organoid. Now there's all sorts of questions about brain development and, and people for, for a number of years now have mentioned sort of an adult human brain has a, the connectome has a small world network architecture so how and so one could ask that's that's a beautiful finding and maybe you know that sort of being tweaked and whatnot. But how does that particular neuronal network architecture emerge? Now it might be in the brain organoid that that network architecture is a little bit different. That's what sort of is is now um, work being currently explored. But the question would be how how does that small world network emerge? So. In addition to sort of helping from a medicine point of view, I'd also like to understand of how does a brain build itself? So how are these, what are the mechanisms behind brain development? And so I can sort of certainly talk to experimentalists and I can also, you know, from physics, I can try to build um, models, minimal multi-scale models upon which Um, ultimately one can explore how these neuronal networks emerge in these brain organoids. um, And then based on their architecture, what what functionality are they capable of? And how does does learning sort of, as I like to say now, the emergent properties of learning in living and non-living systems, because one can also study the emergent properties of learning as people are doing in AI, or even in physical networks, like spring networks. Um, And so then one asks, what is the difference between learning in a spring network or a network of resistors versus a network of neurons? And so with the brain organoid, we have this beautiful sort of capability because we don't need to involve people, we don't need to involve animals, it's cells, and so sort of many, many experiments can be done, and that can also provide then sort of testing ground, a great testing ground for computational
0: modeling. With the com- computational model that you're talking about at this point in time, could, could you kind of elaborate on that, because that that sounds really fascinating because, you know, when you're kind of taking a cell and, and creating a poor stem stem cell, when you're taking a PT dish, this takes time to mature. But then if you have a computation model, once you kind of understand the architecture, that could really be a game changer. Would you like to elaborate on that?
1: Yes. So maybe I'll be just a, a little bit specific um, for the moment and then I'll be a little more broad so um here is a particular question in terms of brain development so a question could be which many people have been asking through the ages um, how is a human brain different from a chimpanzee brain right so we have different species let's let's maybe we have mammalian species so we have sort of a mouse brain whose volume is of order you know uh, something a tenth or so or a hundredth of a centimeter cubed we have a human brain. It's of order, you know, people say, 1,500 cubic centimeters. And then we have a chimpanzee, which is about um, a third of that volume. And so, you know, one could ask what sort of, you know, we obviously are a different species. What's separating us? And so people certainly hone in on given that our genome is very similar to a chimpanzee, meaning we're sort of a one point ish percent difference in our genome, how is it then that we have sort of a three times sort of a larger brain than a chimpanzee? And is that larger brain enabling us to sort of do more things, if you will, to create more, to invent more? Certainly chimpanzees also have been found to invent things as well. But we do it, I guess, on a, we could say a larger scale. And so what are the differences between a chimp brain and structurally and a um, human brain? And so that question, of course, has been now reframed in the context of brain organoids. How is a chimp? Uh, so if you take pluripotent stem cells derived from a chimp versus pluripotent stem cells taken from a human, you take those cells, you have their respective petri dishes and you grow brain organoids in the two respective petri dishes. Um, Madeline Lancaster's, ha- and, and, and in her lab, has found um, that indeed, that the human brain organoid the area if you look at the surface area or the the projected area is larger say even around day 10 um, than a chimp brain organoid or a chimp derived brain organoid so um she has discovered that there a potential reason for this difference um, is that there is a transcription factor which is called zeb2 that is upregulated Uh, during the time at which the cells in these brain organoids take on a very different shape. And that transition when the cells take on a very different shape happens later in the human brain organoid, meaning it around day 10 as opposed to day five in the uh, chimp brain organoid. So the point is, is there is this finding of upregulation of this particular transcription factor. So that's at the gene scale. And then that translates to something changed in the cell shape, scale, and then that cell shape change where the cells become, go from sort of more globular to to having, being longer and skinnier, um, then uh, happens at different times in the chimp and the human. And so she's kind of traced that cell shape change transition when it happens as a key indicator for the differences in size. So now one asks the question, and here's where I step in. Okay, so if there's sort of this difference in gene expression, the timing of it, what is happening? And so really, can we link the gene sort of scale to the, uh, I guess, more of order 200 micron scale or whatnot in terms of the brain organoids because they're kind of uh, younger brain organoids, um, meaning up to day 10 or so. Um, And so what uh, we proposed as a hypothesis is that as the cells divide in the brain organoid, um, what a potential hypothesis is the difference between this delayed and onset of the cell shape transition is that there can be a, maybe a chromatin reorganization due to the cells dividing in a confined space. As the cells divide, they become more crowded. And as they become more crowded, the cell shapes change a little bit. And then that, therefore the nuclear shapes change. As the nuclear shapes change, that can have uh, trigger some rearrangement in the chromatin Chromatin is sort of the DNA plus histone, sort of how the DNA gets all sort of put into the, the cell nucleus. And so, if you have a, a physical mechanism of sort of nuclei changing shape, that can uh, trigger chromatin reorganization, which then maybe can trigger uh, the ZEB2 expression. So, it's a hypothesis, really, it's a multi scale hypothesis. That, begs, that asks the question sort of what's really happening at the chromatin scale between the chimp and the human? Um, can we see changes in chromatin organization earlier in the chimp that then triggers the cell shape change as compared to the human? Um, and what I am trying to do is then build models where we have chromatin we have that is balled up into a cell nucleus, a deformable cell nucleus that then is embedded into a cell, a deformable cell, that then is now attached or uh, interacting with a collection of cells. And then those collection of cells divide. And as they divide, we can keep track of the cell shape. Uh, We can keep track of the nuclear shape, and then we can keep track of the chromatin and how it reorganizes. And then the next, the last final step will be relating chromatin, sort of that sort of slightly hundreds of nanometer scale, if you will, to the, the gene scale, which would be of the order of the nanometer scale. And so with these computational models, we can certainly test this hypothesis. Do we see chromatin organization happen earlier in such a in, in a way uh, earlier in the um, chimp as compared to the human, and in particular the area of the chromatin that's sort of related to the to the uh, Zeb2 expression ultimately. So that's what I can test in the computational model. Of of course, um, Madeline Lancaster in her lab can test this hypothesis experimentally, because there's a technique known as Hi-C, which actually can give one in a real world, <laughs> real world experiment, what does the chromatin organization look like in these cells as the brain organoid develops over time, chimp versus human.
0: I'm sure there are other teams also who are working on brain organoids. Could, could, you, could you talk about some of your peers who are at the forefront uh, of this and what are the problems they are solving? How do you think that's going to uh, impact the future of healthcare?
1: Um, so, in the labs of Orly Reiner and Amnon Baksim, um, who are collabor- now collaborators of mine, uh, wonderful collaborators, brilliant people, um, so they have uh, done, performed a genetic mutation that's related to Lysencephaly um, and explored the effects of that genetic mutation in brain organoids. And they have found that um, actually the brain organoids, there are differences between the wild type or the non-mutated versus the mutated. There are differences in mechanical properties of the brain organoids. Um, and that in itself, so actually, so being a physicist and mechanics, forces, energy, you know, that sort of those notions interest me. Um, and so I am working with them to understand. You know how those mechanical differences in these organoids at, at day 10 and maybe 10s day, maybe of days later on as well, in those organoids, what can in principle those mechanical differences translate to in terms of functional differences? I mean, that certainly ultimately structure is beautiful. We want to understand structure, but then we want to link that structure to function as, as the biologists always say. So that sort of would be the next step. Uh, Ken Kosick, a brilliant um, neuroscientist at um, UCSB, and in his lab, um, they've been working on the electrical signaling of of brain organoids, looking at the neuronal network, looking at the architecture, as as I mentioned, um, trying to um, understand sort of the Again, I don't want to steal anyone's thunder, but understand the robustness of these neuronal networks. Um, I and um, Aman Borzou um, are working on trying to understand the neuronal avalanches in these brain organoids. So when you can ask, what's the size of that avalanche, the total integrated signal, um, and you can actually plot the distribution of those avalanche sizes. And people have done this for rat brains, slices of rat brains. People have done this for maybe since uh, the, uh, 2010, I maybe was the first or sorry, uh, 2003 was maybe the first paper where they looked at the rat brain. And they found actually a broad distribution of avalanche sizes in rat brain slices when you um, stimulate them. And so one can ask, do we find the same type of, of distribution in a brain organoid, again, trying to sort of explore similarities and differences between a brain organoid and, and a brain.
0: My last question: What next to you? Because we're running on time, out of time. Maybe just a couple of minutes there. What comes next to you? And and you're also working on, uh, uh, organoid intelligence by a computer. Right? Maybe just you
1: can just address that. My collaborators and I uh, uh, have now an algorithm that we call frequency propagation. So this is with uh, Vidahesh uh, Rao Anasetti, Anna Kandala, and Benjamin Chilier. Um We have a new algorithm called frequency propagation, which is uh, rooted in a physical system, which is different related but different to say back propagation which is what um, the um, um, machine learning uh, people use to train uh, a neural net to be able to learn how to recognize or distinguish between the cat versus a dog so as we work on understanding the emergent properties of learning in a physical system or a dead system um, and really understanding fundamentally what is key here. This is where, um, as a physicist, we want to understand the basic underlying mechanisms. Is this a work toward understanding what's the underlying mechanism for the basis of mass and whatnot? Here we want to learn what are the um, underlying um, basic mechanisms for learning at its core. So because if we can understand those uh, such mechanisms at their core, then we have the capability to leap above and beyond, you know, what the current understanding. So just as we'd like to learn about learning in dead systems, um, we also like to apply, say this frequency propagation algorithm that we introduced recently to living systems to apply these types of algorithms to um, a brain organoid, the neuronal network in a brain organoid to determine how how a brain organoid um, learns. So it's not just the fact of demonstrating that it learns, that is great, um, but what is actually going on? What is underneath the hood? Um, And looking for universal, if you will, mechanisms across living and and dead systems. So again, blurring the boundaries between living and non-living matter. So that sort of uh, is where I'm next headed um, in terms of um, organoid intelligence, if you will, or organoid learning. Um, and that, of course, also involves what is how does the architecture um, affect the learning? And so that's where the architecture of the neural network, certainly that's where we come back to structure. And so again, uh, going toward this sort of gene to tissue structure, Uh, puzzle so thinking about that as well in terms of how we relate this multi-scale setup of really if you will computers within computers that's sort of a feedback between them and adaptability that's sort of a living system for you and so how the structure then uh, building these multi-scale computational models to understand and be able to predict ultimately the um, structure of a brain organoid we'd like to then couple that structure to ultimately how does the neuronal network evolve? And then based on the architecture of the neuronal network, what is the um, functionality of the brain organoid in terms of its capability uh, to learn? So um, that's what's up next. So stay tuned and thank you very much uh, for talking with me. And I guess I'd like to acknowledge also in this um, structure approach in terms of linking ultimately uh, genes to tissue, though right now it's more chromatin to tissue, I'd like to also acknowledge um, um, great collaborator uh, Tao Zhang of uh, Shanghai Tong University in helping build the computational models um, with me, um, as well as Sartik Gupta um, and Ali Patterson and Banigan. Um So uh, thank you.
0: Lovely. Uh, Jennifer, really appreciate you taking time and being part of the podcast. To my listeners, if you like what you see in here, then please press the subscribe button. Until next time, see you guys. Bye-bye. Thank you.